Please take out your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, we here at First Baptist, uh, we believe that the Bible is God's holy and inerrant word. Uh, and the Bible itself declares that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us. Like every single verse and every single chapter is God-breathed. Uh, and so there's no such thing as uh, an unimportant or irrelevant chapter of the Bible. But at the same time, there are some chapters that are just uh, so important and so crucial in the unfolding of redemptive history. Uh, Some chapters that so clearly testify to the person and work of Christ uh, that we as believers, we just need to pay extra close attention to them. Uh, And the chapter that we'll be talking about over the next two Sundays, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, is one of those chapters to which we should pay extra attention close attention. Uh, The section from verse 5 to verse 16, uh, one commentator points out that it's the longest speech by God since all the way back at Mount Sinai, and so we should pay extra close attention. Uh, Themes from this chapter, uh, David's kingdom and David's throne and David's offspring, uh, they're going to be themes that run throughout the entire Bible, especially in the prophetic writings, and so we should pay extra close attention. Jesus and the New Testament epistles in writing about Jesus, uh, they refer to this chapter over and over and over, and so we should pay extra close attention. Like, I don't think I can overstate the importance of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so before we start, and as we always do, let's Let's ask God to help us, uh, that he would uh, give us eyes to see just the glory of this wonderful chapter. Father, we thank you for your word and how you, by your divine providence and sovereignty, have preserved your word for your people, uh, that we might gather on this morning and look to it for life-giving truth. And we just ask that you would give us now a great ability to focus on your word, Please allow us to tune out any distractions that we might be unhindered in our attention and our devotion to your word. We pray that you would even expand the capacities of our minds that we might have a greater and grander view of your glorious promises to your people in your son. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. So our goal this morning is to cover the first 17 verses of this chapter. Uh, Those of you taking notes, we have uh, two points this morning. Point number one is a house for God. And point number two is a house for David. So let's start with point number one. A house for God. Now remember where we are in this uh, book of 2 Samuel. David becomes the king over all Israel in chapter 5. He uh, unites all 12 tribes under his rule. Then he takes Jerusalem. He drives out the Jebusites who were there, and now Jerusalem is the new capital. Then in chapter 6, he brings in the Ark of God, uh, the symbolic manifestation of God's presence among his people. He brings the Ark into the city of Jerusalem, and he puts it in the tent that he set up for it. 
And that brings us to chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Now, we can just kind of gloss over that phrase there. The Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. But friends, we have just been in First and Second Samuel for way too long to take that statement for granted. I mean, we have seen David go through every kind of trial and trouble and turmoil. Battling Goliath. Running for his life from King Saul for many years. Fighting the Amalekites. Finally becoming king, but now having to deal with Abner and Ishbosheth and their rival kingdom. And he finally unites the kingdom, but now he's got to fight the Jebusites and he's got to fight the Philistines. I mean, pretty much from like 1 Samuel 17 onwards, it seems like there hasn't been a quiet and restful day in David's life. It's just been decades and decades of constant running and fighting and battling and contending. If you ever have one of those like, crazy weeks, like ridiculous weeks, where you just feel like you've been running around nonstop, like you barely have any time to breathe, you're skipping meals, you're, you're losing track of the days, you're just going like 110%, like all week, then you finally have that glorious day. Where you wake up and your major projects are are finished or at least on pause and there's just nothing pressing or urgent and you can just have a nice, slow morning and and sip your coffee. Well, imagine that your your crazy week is a few decades long and that stressful project at work is people trying to kill you and you kind of begin to grasp the magnitude of verse 1, right? Like, finally, at long last, the Lord had given David rest from all his surrounding enemies. You'll remember a few chapters ago in chapter 5, David built a house for himself. Uh, Hiram king of Tyre, he kind of chips in. He he sends some cedar wood. He sends some carpenters and some masons. And so uh, we don't know the details of what it looked like, but I think it's pretty safe to assume that it was a very nice-looking house. He is, after all, the king. So David is at rest. He's sitting in this presumably beautiful house, and maybe he kind of looks over the roof or he looks out the window or whatever and he, and he sees the tent, the tent into which he put the ark. And he begins to feel like, oh, something's not right. And so he turns to Nathan the prophet. This is the same Nathan the prophet that will play a very large role in the rest of the book. Verse 2, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So David's feeling kind of bad. He's feeling kind of guilty. Now we don't know if David said anything else. Uh, If he did, it's not recorded for us. Or maybe he didn't have to say anything else because Nathan knew exactly what he was implying. Basically, God's presence can't keep dwelling in that poor little tent. I need to build him a a grand house of cedar like my own. Verse 3, Nathan said to the king, Go. Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, Nathan was a prophet, and so Nathan surely knew his Bible. That wording in verse 1, the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, that's language that mirrors Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10. And the verses that follow Deuteronomy 12, 10 are all about the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. 
It's about the fact that the Israelites were to set up some place after God granted them that rest. So maybe Nathan's kind of doing the math in his head here, and he's thinking, well, we seem to have some rest. Perhaps this is the time of Deuteronomy chapter 12. Maybe David's onto something here. Maybe it's about time that we built a permanent temple for God. And so look at his initial response to David. It's basically, yeah, let's do this. But now look at verses 4 and 5. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? The implied answer there is no. And then God gives a fuller explanation. Verse 6, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God has never demanded a house. Now, it's not just because he's omnipresent. Right? Like he's in all places at all times. It's kind of like what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Well, in that sense, obviously, God doesn't need a house. But it's more than that. Look at what he says here. It's that he chose to manifest his presence among his people Israel in a movable tent. Right? He chose to dwell in a tabernacle precisely so he could show his people that he was with them wherever they went in their journeys. I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling because he wanted to demonstrate to them clearly that I will be with you and I will never leave you nor forsake you. You ever give someone like, wrong advice? And a little later you realize it, and you're like, ah, I better go correct that pretty quickly. That's Nathan here, right? Like that same night, God corrects him. And I'd imagine that pretty much as soon as God corrected him, he's running to David's house. He's got to get this right. I think it's a helpful reminder to us that the prophets, uh, Nathan is clearly a prophet of the Lord. Uh, the prophets themselves are not infallible, right? They're not inherently infallible. They're only infallible when they have a word from the Lord, right? When they speak on behalf of the Lord. Uh, in verse 3, clearly Nathan's speaking on behalf of Nathan uh, when he tells David, hey, let's, let's do this. And so God quickly corrects him. So point number one, a house for God. Right? David had a plan to build God a house, but God quickly says no. Now, if you've been to paying attention, this is now the second straight chapter in which one of David's plans is stopped by God. Remember chapter 6? It was David's plan to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem on a cart, pulled by oxen. And you'll remember how God brought a quick end to that plan by striking Uzzah dead as soon as he touched the Ark. Well, here in chapter 7, we have the second straight chapter of God stopping David's plan. But there's one major difference. The original plan of chapter 6, that was a direct violation of God's word. David and his men clearly disregarded what God's word said about how the ark was to be transported. And so regardless of how good David's original intentions were, it was wrong, it was sinful, and so God put an end to it 
But here in chapter 7, David's plan to build a temple for God is not a direct violation of God's word. It just wasn't God's will for David to do it at this time. And really, the answer, as we'll see in a little bit, it's not so much no as it is not yet and not you. Because later on, God has David's son Solomon build the temple. In part because Solomon was a man of rest, in contrast to David being a man of war. But building the temple in itself wasn't inherently a bad or evil idea. God even commends David for the initiative, for the desire to honor him in that way. 1 Kings 8, verse 18, God tells David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. So that temple idea, you did well that it was in your heart. It really was a noble thought. Your motives were pure. Your desire was really to glorify me, but it's not my will. Not yet and not you. Friends, I think this is a really helpful thing for us to think about. Not every good or commendable or well-intentioned or noble desire of our hearts in serving God is necessarily his will for us. Let me repeat that. Not every good or commendable or well-intentioned or noble desire of our hearts in serving God is necessarily his will for us. So maybe you want to be a missionary. And you want to preach the gospel where the gospel has never been preached. Uh, Praise God for that desire. That is a good desire. That is a noble, God-glorifying desire. And so perhaps we would say, like God said to David, you did well that it was in your heart. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's God's will for you. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Or maybe you want to preach or go into the ministry. Praise God for that desire. That is a good desire. That is a noble, uh, God-glorifying desire. First Timothy chapter 3 even tells us, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. In other words, you did well that it was in your heart. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's God's will for you. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. And that's part of the reasons why we have those qualifications. Or maybe uh, you you want to be married. Or you want to serve at a church plant. Or whatever it might be. Praise God for those desires. But brothers and sisters, we need to be open to the fact that not every good and well-intentioned desire that we have for the glory of God is necessarily his will for us. Now, we don't have the benefit of hearing from prophets like David had Nathan. Prophets who could quickly put an end to any aspirations that aren't God's will uh, with a direct word. Thus saith the Lord. But friends, we can have an open ear to the counsel of others. Uh, Being willing to listen to reasons why that good thing that we want to do, why it may not be such a good thing for us. We need to be willing to accept God's providential hindrances uh, that might frustrate our good intentions. We need to be willing to pray and to search his will, not just looking for confirmation of what we already want to do, but taking note of God closing certain doors because it's simply not his desire for us to serve him in the way that we wanted to. 
and maybe most of all, we ought never to be angry or upset with God because something that we wanted to do for him didn't work out the way that we thought it should. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's something we do really well to heed to. Point number one, a house of God. Point number two, a house for David. Before we get to these verses here, let me just kind of give you the knockout punch, right? The, the, the main idea of this whole section. So David wants to build a, a house for God. God's basically going to flip that on its head. And he says, no, you're not going to make me a house. I'm going to make you a house. Look at the end of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. That's the knockout punch. Now, that's a play on words. God isn't going to build David like an actual, like a literal dwelling, like a roof with walls. David's already got one of those, right? Remember, he's in his nice little cedar house. Now, here God isn't referring to a physical building. He's referring to a dynasty. Sometimes uh, wordplay doesn't carry over from language to language. Uh, But here, the play on words works in Hebrew, and it works in English. We use the word house in those same two ways. Uh, Like, for example, the House of Windsor is currently ruling in the United Kingdom, right? Queen Elizabeth II, all that. Uh, The House of Windsor is her royal family. It's the royal dynasty. And so we use the word house in both senses also, right? As a building and as a dynasty. And so God says here, no, David, you're not going to build me a temple house. I'm going to make you a dynasty house. See the play on words. David wants to do something for God. And God says, no, 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 I'm going to do something for you. And really this whole section, if you just kind of scan your eyes through it real quick, this whole section is about God doing things for David. It's like, I will, I will, I will. This whole section is I will. Friends, isn't that just wonderful? Uh, That is just God's gracious, giving nature on display. Friends, we try and we try and we try to like give to God, sometimes out of a a heart of thankfulness, but I think most of the time out of a a works mentality that uh, perhaps seeks to earn God's favor. And I'm not just talking about non-Christians here, like trying to earn their salvation through good works, which of course uh, is impossible. And by the way, that's basically the teaching of every false religion out there. Here's what you've got to do if you want to receive whatever blessing it is from your God. But I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking to Christians. I'm talking to you who are born again. I'm talking to you who have trusted in the finished work of Christ, who are saved by grace alone, how we can slip back into that mentality of thinking that we've got to do things for God in order for him to have favor with us. Or this kind of ridiculous mentality 
that if we don't do things for God, like his kingdom is going to collapse. Or this idolatrous mindset that our identity is primarily about what we have done or what we have accomplished on behalf of the kingdom of God. What would Paul say? Paul would say, by no means. It's like his doxology in Romans 11. Who has given a gift to God that God might be repaid? The answer is nobody. Christian, brothers and sisters, you cannot outgive God. It's not about what you do for God, right? It's about what God in Christ has done for us. And so sometimes, like he does here, God just kind of flips our ambitions back on us. You want to do stuff for me, David? Okay, but, but let me show you first what I'm going to do for you. And before we go any further with this, I should point out here that uh, what God says in these verses to David is in the form of a covenant. Uh, David later calls this an everlasting covenant between him and God. And so just to make sure we're all on the same page here, right? Like what is uh, a covenant? Uh, broadly speaking, uh, a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons, right? That defines their relationship. So just a, a simple human example, right? Marriage is a covenant. It's an agreement between a man and a woman that then defines their relationship, that sets their relationship apart from every other relationship that you might have. Church membership is a covenant. That's why we read the church covenant. It's an agreement between a Christian and his or her brothers or sisters in Christ that then defines their relationship with one another. Whether we realize it or not, uh, the idea of covenants, it's just all around us. Now, specifically with regards to God, a covenant is the promises and the conditions and the stipulations which then define the relationship between God and man. And perhaps the best summary statement of what that covenant-driven relationship is, and you see this phrase all over the Bible, it's, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be your God. You will be my people. So you can think of covenants between God and man as defining that statement. Like, what does it mean that God will be your God and we will be his people? That's what covenant is. But before he gets to the specifics of the covenant, look at how God reminds David of his past faithfulness. We're not getting to the promises yet at all. We're just looking at God's past faithfulness. Verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. David, you were a lowly shepherd. You guys remember when Samuel comes to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be the next king? Jesse doesn't even invite David. There remains yet the youngest. Uh, but behold, he is, he's keeping the sheep. But now that same shepherd boy is prince over God's people. That's something that could only happen by God's sovereign orchestration of all things. 
Verse 9, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I mean, we have literally seen that unfold chapter after chapter. Goliath, Philistines, Amalekites, Jebusites, most significantly King Saul. God's hand of protection has so obviously been upon David. But why does God tell David these things? He doesn't say these things to David like, we might go up to a friend and say, hey, you remember that time I helped you move the couch uh, when we were about to ask them to do us a favor? You owe me, right? You need to repay me now. No, it's actually the exact opposite. Like when David tries to do something for God, God says no. No, the reason that God reminds David of his past faithfulness is not to exact some repayment or to make him feel indebted. But it's the exact opposite. It's so that he would continue to trust God to give him more and more and more going forward because God is a giving God. Look at all these ways in which I've shown my love for you. How I've chosen you to be king. How I've protected you from every single enemy in the past. And now I want you to trust me for the future. Friends, the same principle is true for each and every one of us in this room who is a believer. The Bible contains so much evidence of God's past faithfulness for his children. And I'm not talking right now about like God's children in a general sense. I am talking specifically to you as God's child. You, as God's child, the Bible says that God elected you for salvation. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And the Bible says that you, Jesus died for you. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The Bible says that God the Holy Spirit regenerated you from being spiritually dead to now being made spiritually alive. Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And the Bible says that God granted you faith. Ephesians 2, 8, this is not your own doing. It is the gift from God. The Bible says that God granted you repentance. Acts eleven eighteen. God has granted repentance that leads to life. And the Bible says that God has preserved you to this point. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so in all of these things, you did nothing. God did everything. In all of these things, God has been abundantly and excessively faithful to you. In all these things, God has clearly shown his great love for you. He's taken you from the pasture. That you might be something even greater uh, than a prince of a nation. He's made you into a child of the king. He's been with you wherever you've gone. He's cut off all of your enemies from before you, including sin and death and the devil. Brothers and sisters, is that 
past faithfulness not all the evidence that we need to trust him with every single little detail of our lives going forward? That's the logic of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Is that not enough evidence that we might be fully confident and sing with Newton, his grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Oh, it's enough. It's more than enough. Certainly more than enough for David. But now look at those future promises that the past faithfulness allowed him then to trust. Starting in the middle of verse 9. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So what is the promise here? Well, God promises that David's name would be great, that Israel would have rest and peace and be able to dwell in the land. Uh, This is, for those of you who are familiar with Genesis, a lot of the, the, the same language as God's covenant promises to Abraham. But I remember I said earlier that the second half of verse 11 is kind of like the main point of this whole section. So now look at how the promise begins to just expand just really quickly. Moreover, verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So what's going on here? Like what, what are these covenant promises about? Well, most directly, they are about David's son, Solomon. Look again at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, like when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. That's talking about Solomon, who was David's biological son and who would rule the kingdom after him. Now, we might be kind of quick to gloss over that, but remember that Israel, to this point in their history, has never had a dynastic succession of kings. Saul was the first king. And Saul's sons never reigned as king. Ishbosheth tried, but whatever. And so just that fact, right, that David would have his own son to rule after him, well, don't lose sight that that is significant in and of itself. And then in verse 13, God says, uh, still referring to Solomon, he shall build a house for my name. 
If you skip ahead to the story of 1 Kings, uh, Solomon does indeed build that temple that David was desirous to build, that David never did, the house for God's name. And it was wonderful. And God filled the temple with his glory. So again, to build the temple wasn't an inherently bad idea by David. It just wasn't the time and he just wasn't the person. Now look at verse 14. God makes an amazing promise here. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Solomon, and by extension, those who would come after him in the line of kings, the line of sons, they would be like sons to God. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But now we know from Proverbs, uh, we know from Hebrews chapter 12, uh, with sonship comes loving discipline. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And so Solomon and sons, kings of Judah, when you sin, when you mess up, don't think that just because you're from the line of David that you're immune or you're untouchable. Quite the opposite. The Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So for example, Solomon's chasing after other gods. 1 Kings 11. What does God do? He tears the kingdom into two. But remember the promise, verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him. And so God doesn't take away the kingdom entirely. As a matter of fact, look at what God says to him in 1 Kings eleven thirteen. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant. And so you see that. It's for the sake of the covenant that God made with David. It's because of those covenant promises. And you read throughout Israel's history, like you're going to see that idea repeated over and over and over. Verses like Second Chronicles 21.7, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he promised to give him a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So yes, in some part at least, these covenant promises are fulfilled in Solomon. They're fulfilled in the kings of Judah that came after him, or kings that were all descended from David. Even Solomon himself acknowledges that. First Kings 8.20, this is right after he builds the temple. He says, now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And so the promises are fulfilled in Solomon. But, but, but there is no way that we can read these covenant promises and just say, well, well, all of it was fulfilled in Solomon and the kings of Judah. Well, actually you can If you remove one word, do you see what that word is? It's the word forever. Don't do this. Please don't actually cross out anything in your Bibles. But if you were to cross out that word forever, it appears three times in this promise, then yes, you could conclude that this prophecy is just about Solomon and the kings who came right after him. But you can't just cross out forever. It's there three times. Look at verse 13. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Verse 16, your throne shall be established forever. And forever means that these promises could not have been fulfilled by Solomon and the kings of Judah. Why? Because they didn't rule forever. Solomon succeeded by his son, Rehoboam, and Rehoboam succeeded by his son, Abijah, and uh, so on and so forth. That dynasty, that house, that throne, it goes on for quite a while, some 400 plus years. But nobody's confusing 400 plus years with forever. And so in 586 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, when they destroyed Jerusalem, and the kingdom and, and the throne seemed to come to an abrupt end, well, these, these covenant promises, these promises from 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, perhaps it seems like God had failed to keep his promises. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a, is a psalm of lament that was written about the destruction of Jerusalem uh, when the Babylonians brought an end to David's throne. And obviously, if you're an Israelite back then, like, you're just kind of dealing with a lot, right? You're, you're upset, and you're, you're, you're confused, and you're pained, and you're troubled by a lot of things. Uh, the destruction of your homeland, uh, the exile to Babylon, the, the powerlessness of your own army against Nebuchadnezzar's, right? Like, it's just a terrible time to be an Israelite. But Psalm 89, I think, captures what would have been one of the most troubling things for any Israelite. Let's start in verse 3. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Clearly, that's a reference to the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7. But now look ahead to verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. Look, we see the destruction of Jerusalem. We see the destruction of the temple. We see that we are in exile. What's going on here? Part of the covenant was that if the king commits iniquity, then God would discipline him. We've had some really bad kings and some really bad idolatry. And clearly the Babylonians acted as God's rod of discipline. But God, you said in the covenant that my steadfast love will not depart. And yet here we are with no king, with no kingdom, with no throne, with no hope. Where, God, is that steadfast love? Verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love? Right? That steadfast love from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Where is that steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Has God cut off his steadfast love from the house of David for good? The answer, of course, is no. This is where the Old Testament prophets are really helpful. Because there's prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that tell us that there is something greater. A greater fulfillment. Something much grander. And remember the key word. Something much more forever than Solomon and the kings who would come after him. That this promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7 was never meant to find its full meaning in those mortal kings. 
that this promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7 doesn't just end because of the Babylonian exile. So Isaiah chapter 11 talks about the shoot from the stump of Jesse that would come, whose resting place shall be glorious. In Jeremiah 23, God says he's going to raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. In Ezekiel 34, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Ezekiel 37, David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. No. Children of Israel in the foreign land of Babylon, right? You can take hope because God has not cut off his steadfast love from the house of David for good because there's a greater David still to come. A greater David who is going to fulfill every one of those forever promises. Friends, if you have ever thought to yourself, I can't believe the New Testament begins with something as uninteresting as a genealogy. I really hope you will rethink that now. I hope you see, right? 2 Samuel chapter 7, given the crushing blow of the Babylonian exile, but that little glimmer of hope that we have from the prophets. I hope you see how exciting and amazing and awesome the very first verse of the New Testament is. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As in, this is a book about the ultimate fulfillment of everything promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So keep reading. This is the son of David that you've been waiting for. This is the forever in all of those promises. This is the proof that God has not cut off his steadfast love from the house of David. This is the evidence that point number two, a house for David, that it still stands. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the ultimate fulfillment of all of those forever promises. The son of David who's going to sit on David's eternal throne. The son of David who's going to rule and reign forever. We see the same exact thing at the very beginning of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 1. The angel says to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. You see that? See how that passage in Luke makes reference to the throne of his father David, the house of Jacob and his kingdom. Throne, house, kingdom. We know now where that comes from. Second Samuel chapter 7. God promises David a throne, promises David a house, promises David a kingdom, and that throne, house, kingdom, all finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the son of David. The New Testament affirms this truth over and over and over. I'm just going to show you one more verse. Acts 13. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Here it is. Of this man's offspring, 
God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised in 2 Samuel 7. Jesus is the fulfillment as he promised. But look again at that verse, verse 23. We might expect Paul to say there, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a king. But no, it's savior. And that's an important distinction. Because that was a huge stumbling block for the Jews. They were happy enough that Jesus was a king. There were times when they tried to make him king by force. Set up your rule here on earth. But what they didn't have eyes to see was the kind of king that he would be. A savior king. A king who would come to save his people by dying for their sins. But that's exactly who Jesus is. Our savior king. Talked about how Solomon and the other kings that follow, how they would be disciplined by the rod of men with the stripes of the son of, sons of men, precisely because they were sons of God themselves. Well, Jesus, Jesus lives a perfect life. Jesus never sins. He's God's perfect son, and yet he was beaten by the rod of men. He was scourged by the stripes of those sons of men. Not for his own sin, for he committed none, but for all the sins of his elect. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. But of course, this Jesus didn't stay dead. Been talking a lot about the temple. Well, what did Jesus say about temples? Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus did exactly that. After he's crucified for sin, he gloriously rises again from the dead. And from there, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And now he rules and reigns forever. Hebrews 1.8 makes that connection for us. Of the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, 2 Samuel 7, finds its ultimate fulfillment, right? The forever aspect of all of those promises for all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20. Friend, if you came here today and you are not a Christian, 2 Samuel 7 is the best news in the world for you. Because the son of David, who was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he has come, and he has died for the sins of his people. And today, if you would repent and believe that gospel, if you would place all your trust in that son of David, if you would trust the promises of 2 Samuel 7 and their fulfillment in Christ— well, you too can be saved. And just for fun, right? Like who doesn't want to know how it all ends? Right? Revelation 22, right? This is the, the very, very last chapter of the Bible. I'm going to close with this because I think this will just tie it all together for us. Revelation 22, verse 16. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I am the descendant of David. I am the one who was promised all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that is the kingdom that God has secured for sinners like me and like you. Isn't that just glorious? Father, we thank you for the glorious promises that you gave to your servant David and by extension to all your people through your word. Father, we thank you that the perfect fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of all of those promises are found in Christ, the son of David, who came to die for the sins of his people that he might be their savior king. Father, we pray for those of us in this room who do know you, that you would increase our trust and our love for your son. We pray for those in this room who do not yet know you, that today might be the day of salvation in which they place their trust and their hope in the son of David, the greater David, the fulfillment of every promise in the scriptures. And we ask this in Jesus' name.